0: Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination, Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. The following is the tale of a loving wife and mother, a philanthropist and a catalyst for change, both within a stuffy old establishment and among a wider nation. The tale of a figure of great fascination in her own time, especially to Europeans. It is the story of someone who rose from, well... We don't know enough about her beginnings in Rahatan, a town near Lviv, Ukraine, to say. Well, humble beginnings, sure. But our protagonist did ascend the heights from slavery to royalty. She was no action hero. She never burnt a bathhouse to the ground while crammed full of Drevlian warlords like Olga of Kiev, but was impressive in other ways. For one, to survive what she did and thrive after shows a remarkably cool-headed, brave and adaptable character. The Ukrainians fought Roxolana, our heroine. Remarkable enough that on gaining freedom from the USSR in 1991, they built a bronze statue of her in Rahatan, Ukraine. In looking for heroes and role models of the past, they saw fit to include Roxelana in their pantheon. Before we get to Roxelana, Hurum, or Hesiki Sultan, all names she was known by, we need to detour to mid-13th century Anatolia. Modern-day Turkey, to add a little context. At an unspecified date in the mid-1200s, a Turkish warlord named Ertugrul made his way to Anatolia, accompanied by his tribe of 400 tents. Like the Seljuks who had arrived a few hundred years earlier, they were steppe people, in their case from Uzbekistan. More likely than not, they were refugees, who suddenly had to flee the Mongol hordes. Initially, the Seljuks gave the Turks some of their land to settle in, but in the course of a couple of generations, the Seljuks lost their prominence, while the Turks rose to prominence in the region. Ertugrul's son, Osman, graduated from warlord to king. In a dynasty that ran for 37 emperors, Osman, Uthman in Arabic, would be their first and lend his name to their dynasty. Uthman soon becoming Ottoman to Western ears. By their seventh Sultan Mehmed II, the land was all theirs, with the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire. In 1453 Mehmed’s armies conquered the Byzantines at Constantinople, renaming the city Istanbul. He arrived with a numerically superior army and navy, but succeeded where many other large armies had failed by using cannons and bombards as wall breakers. The fall of Constantinople ushered in a new age of warfare, where the most impressive of defensive walls no longer guaranteed victory. Not that I buy into great man theories of history, but Mehmet II was an impressive commander whose actions changed the world. As impressive as Mehmet was, A legend pervaded that their 10th sultan would really be something else entirely. Sarasaltic was a Turkish dervish who traveled deep into the Balkans, proselytizing Islam to the people. His hagiography became wildly popular with the Islamic children. One day, Sarasaltic allegedly came across a magnificent European city. With a beautiful church. Atop the church roof a golden sphere. To the saint that sphere looked just like a golden apple. As he sent men up to bring him down the golden apple the prophet Khazir was said to have appeared and warned him to leave the apple where it was. That apple was only to be picked by the tenth sultan who will be their greatest conqueror. Time rolled on, and with a couple of Ottoman sultans engaged in empire building, the presumed location of the Golden Apple moved upwards and westwards. As Emperor No. 10 came into focus with his coronation in 1520, the Golden Apple was believed to be in Hungary. That emperor, a man named Suleiman, would become a great conqueror, much to the chagrin of European kings who hoped for a peaceful emperor next. The son of the bellicose emperor, Selim I, he continued in that family tradition, personally leading five major campaigns. However, as we shall see, he was an altogether more complex individual than his father. We'll come back to Solomon the Magnificent in a moment. In the last years, the old man of the mountain We briefly mentioned the Crimean slave markets when discussing a Mongol raid into modern-day Bulgaria in the 1220s. This was a mission to punish the Kipchaks, another steppe people who had gotten on the Mongols' bad side. One boy captured and sold off to a wealthy Egyptian through these markets, rose through the ranks to become the leader of a movement which overthrew the Egyptian ruling class. Known as Baybars, he became the first of a long line of Mamluk sultans. These slave markets, established in the 12th century, would continue until 1769. By 1475, Venice and Genoa, two Italian maritime nations, were ejected from their established bases in the Crimea, having briefly taken over the Black Sea slave trade. Control was passed over to the Giray Tatars a Crimean vassal state of the Ottomans. From just before this handover in 1468, until Russia finally put a stop on them in 1769, the Tatars of the Crimean Khanate harvested the steppes of Ukraine and southern Russia for tens of thousands of villages every year. Their ideal target were young women who could be sold into domestic work or into sexual slavery. From Baybars' time up until the abolition of the Crimean slave trade, around 6.5 million people were rounded up and sold. The slaves' lives were generally harsh and thoroughly miserable. Their treatment often cruel. A Lithuanian observer told of domestic servants who were branded on their foreheads or cheeks like cattle. They also told of people locked in cold, damp dungeons were not engaged in work. Many also died on their way to market. a fate considered a blessing by the Ukrainians and Russians that they preyed upon. Evliya Celebi, a Turkish courtier and traveller, writing in the mid-17th century, stated it was a wonder any slaves ever got to market. They were so poorly treated on the slave trails. Success stories, like Baybar's, were extremely rare. On an unspecified winter's day, when the Tartars could quickly traverse the frozen rivers on horseback, a band of slavers flooded into Rahatan. The two most likely years, 1509 or 1516, two years they definitely reached Rahatan. They slashed and burned everything in sight, killed anyone who fought back, then rounded up any villages they deemed saleable and market. The prisoners, our hero included, were forcibly marched for weeks to the Black Sea port of Kaffa. If captured in 1516, Roxalana would have been 13, very young, but at a push, as capable of taking care of herself as most adults on that long march in 1509, age 6. It doesn't bear to think how terrifying this must have been for the young child. Legend has it, recorded with less evidence than the tale of Saltic's Golden Apple, that she was the daughter of a preacher. Other tales suggested a name. Alexandra Lysoska. Soon her birth name would be deleted. her religion supplanted by Islam. Transported to the Kaffir slave markets. She would have been examined like livestock, bought as part of a bulk purchase, then put on a ship for a 10-day voyage to the slave markets of Istanbul. We don't know where Roxelana spent the following years until 1520, though we do know she would have been taught about Islam and learned the basics of Ottoman language and culture. But we can guess her owners saw something special in her seeing her as just the kind of slave a sultan would pay them a lot of money for. This probably affected the level of training the young girl had. The sultans kept harems of only the best quality slaves, kept separate from the men in Istanbul's old palace. One important reason for the slaves was to keep their bloodline going. In the early years of the Ottoman Empire, Emperors chased old-world authenticity by strategically marrying their children to foreign royals. As their kingdom grew and their neighbors' golden apples looked far too good to resist, this caused them a problem. What if they declare war on the princess's homeland, and that princess turns saboteur on them? What if, God forbid, a princess murders her own children to deny any further Ottoman emperors. Around 1400, potential Ottoman emperors stopped marrying. When it came to love or procreation, sultans courted slaves from the harem. A sultan would be expected to have many favorites over their reign. And once a favorite became pregnant, their favorite would be elevated to a much higher position in the harem, and with a large bump in pay. She would take on much of the responsibility of bringing up the child. The Sultan would, typically, dump her for a new favourite. When a Sultan passed on, there was no regulated order of succession and the male children often fought one another to the death for the top job. Suleiman's father not only went to war with his brother, but personally deposed his own living father to take the crown. In 1402, the emperor Bayezid I lost a war against the warlord Tamerlane, which led to a succession crisis. His son Mehmed I fought a bloody four-way civil war with his remaining brothers. Bayezid himself had his younger brother strangled upon becoming sultan to avoid getting into a civil war. This made for complex dynamics a court. Another element to this is young, would-be sultans, usually turned to outsiders as their top advisors and generals. Many enslaved boys were brought up in Istanbul's new palace and trained to be advisors. Suleiman's top advisor was a young Greek or Albanian man, given the name Ibrahim. A close friend since childhood, Ibrahim Pasha would become Suleiman's vizier and a top general. September 1520, while making plans for a European invasion, Selim I died suddenly. Suleiman, then a 25-year-old father of four and governor of Manisa, rushed back to Istanbul to take the reins. His mother, a former slave named Hafsa, rushed ahead of him to prepare his ascension. Around this time, as Suleiman took charge unopposed, someone, possibly Ibrahim, bought and gifted Roxelana to the Sultan. With this Suleiman's tale, we discuss his quest for the Golden Apple. He led five major campaigns personally, and oversaw several others, vastly expanding Ottoman territory. By 1526, he ruled much of Hungary, after a heroic victory in Mohawks. He captured Rhodes and Corfu. He defeated the Persians and successfully faced off against Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in Vienna, Austria. But today we're interested in his wife. In Manissa, royal protocols around dumping favourites once they bore you a child, were looser. He had a favourite in the mother of his children, a beautiful circassian named Mahidevran. When Roxelana arrived at the harem, a clear pecking order was in place. The Hafsa, Suleiman's mother, ruled the roost, followed by Mahidevran. Roxelana found allies in the harem. She was very likable and apparently a ray of sunshine. The name given to her in the harem, Urim, meaning the joyful one, is testimony to that. The one ally she absolutely won over, though, was the Sultan. One day, he crossed the road from the new palace to the old palace, looking for somebody to spend a little time with. And when he saw Huram, the Sultan was thunderstruck. They spent a little time together. Then they spent a little more time together. And at some time, Mahidevran was said to have become insanely jealous and attacked Huram scratching her face up and tearing out tufts of hair. Once Suleiman found out about the attack, he was furious with Mahidevran. Now, ignoring all the things we don't know and some of the things we do know, like the couple's massive power imbalance alone should give us pause for thought before saying this. But it appears the couple may have fallen in love. By the fall of 1521, Hiram bore Solomon their first child. When he was away chasing golden apples, the couple exchanged love letters. Roxalanas survive, only scraps of Solomon's do. Of course, when he returned, in spite of the dump the concubine and get yourself a new one rule, the couple remained together. In spite of others in his court gifting him a pair of beautiful Russian concubines, Solomon was now pretty much a one-woman man. Between military campaigns, they had more children—six, all up. Roxolana rose to prominence in important circles. By 1526, the Venetian ambassador Pietro Bragadin wrote that she was quote, "young but not beautiful, although graceful and petite." End quote. Zif if Bragadin's observations meant a jot to the sultan. With growing prominence, Roxelana took on the role of Suleiman's eyes and ears in the kingdom while he was away. Her role as a diplomat also increased over the years. By the 1540s, she was in regular contact with King Sigismund II of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, one of Europe's great powers at the time. Despite the couple living in separate palaces for years, in 1530 they were officially recognised as a couple at the circumcision of the three elder sons. No mere operation, this was a nearly three-week-long party of half the known world's dignitaries on the guest list. Among the feasts, fireworks, performers, large-scale war reenactors, and exotic dancers the acknowledged first couple were on display. They would not move in together and officially marry until some time after the death of Suleiman's mother, Hafsa. When they did in 1534, it was the first time in anyone's living memory an Ottoman sultan had married. Now, of course, they were hated by some. For one, the sultan's elite janissary troops a group apt to riot over extended peacetime, detested Roxelana, as did a number of Istanbul's wealthier citizens who spread rumors she must be a witch. How else could she have won the sultan's heart if she hadn't hexed him? And then there were those rumors she was a Machiavellian schemer, responsible for several high-profile executions, including Suleiman's closest friend, Ibrahim Pasha and Mahidevran's son, Mustafa. The former had been in charge of the 1532 invasion of Persia, and had largely been responsible for the invasion having taken far too long, and the victory having come at eye-wateringly high cost. Some say Solomon had him garroted in March 1536, because Roxolana convinced him to do so. Others say Ibrahim had become haughty and arrogant, and a liability on the battlefield. Contemporary sources claim Suleiman executed Mustafa in 1553 because he was caught plotting to kill his father and declare himself sultan. Roxolana had a lot of fans, too. She brought back marriage among the women of the old palace, playing matchmaker to hundreds. This led to an uptick in marriages in general. She sponsored mosques and hospitals and schools, improving the living standards in the empire. The Hasiki Sultan Complex, built between 1538 and 1551, contained a mosque, a school, a hospital, and a soup kitchen. She established foundations to pay for her public works for generations after her passing. The couple had a long, apparently happy marriage, Roxolana never lived to see her children fight it out for the crown. There was no fight, although the succession was messy. With Mustafa strangled, Mehmed dying of smallpox, and Bayezid dying of also getting on Solomon's bad side, while plotting to take out his own brother, Selim II, an unlikely contender popularly known as Selim the Drunk, ended up last man standing. Roxulana, or Huram, or possibly Alexandra, predeceased Solomon by a little over eight years, passing of an unknown illness in April 1558. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media. Links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon. Also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice, share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks time for more tales of history and imagination.